Hello everyone and welcome back to one of these interview episodes of the SWW Show. I'm Mike, and today with me two special guests. Eh, not as far as usual, they're just on the more central west coast over here. Uh, to talk about their game, UFO KO, Crowd Defense, I believe is the full name of the game. Uh, so to get us started, let's introduce the two guys. Uh, I guess I'll start with you, Kelly. You want to introduce yourself and maybe like the, what is the game? Kelly Moak, and uh, creator of UFO KO. Just a little uh, tower defense game, but shooting up uh, UFOs. With us? Uh, yeah, I'm Jesse Fox, and I'm producing the music for UFO KO Tower Defense on Pixel General. And it's been an exciting project. We've got uh, nine tracks on the soundtrack, all at 432 hertz. It's surprising to me, and I'm gonna just so like this is the because the, obviously the size and scope of this game. Uh, usually, having a dedicated sound person, most people aren't as lucky to have. For the record, uh, the rest of us peasants have to start scraping for music or begging our friends versus having one of the two people being a sound person. Yeah, but I, I, I do have the skills to do it myself too. But he's he's much better. So. <laughs> but guess, how did? So I'm kind of curious. How did? UFO, I'm just going to call it that, because I don't know if I feel like saying the thousand syllable name. Uh, get us, get started, kind of. Was it like a project you guys started floating around, or? I just, uh, well, the, I guess the pandemic left me uh, unemployed for a while, and I just had a lot of free time on my hands, and always wanted to make a game. So I said, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, yeah, and I was, um, I was making some music one day, and Kelly was like, can I use that song for my game? And... We just went from there. It's more definitely of a, everything kind of followed into place. Then I was gonna, more of a plan. <laughs> I was like, a lot of that is the pandemic. I, I'm generally curious. A couple of years from now, how many games like this are just gonna start ha existing? Because like, obviously, how much time people had on their hands, and it takes up years. Yeah, I'm expecting them. a flood here soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm expecting a flood here also. Um, so let's so. Why a tower defense game? I feel like tower defense is that genre that I, whenever I talk to developers of it, the t general feeling is it's a genre that existed in, in mass in like that early teens and then just kind of disappeared. And now you're starting to see that indie renaissance of that genre. What, what made that genre like attractive? It's just a genre I've always liked. I've always liked tower defense and uh, I've really just built a game I liked and sitting home with no internet. So. <laughs> It's something I just made something that I could play with no internet at home in the rural, out in the rural mountains. Yeah, that is also that I want to point out too. It how are you? So actually, as a clear, what is so you? I'm assuming this is like one of the like off the shelf like Unity or Unreal engines that is being used on this. Yeah, we I used Unity. So I I appreciate that using Unity with like it sounds like very little internet. <laughs> um. So I'm assuming that that learning curve had to have been very fun to kind of get used to it. Very. I'm pulling. I'm I'm pulling tutorials on my phone. I gotta watch everything on my phone. <laughs> and then uh, upload with hotspots and yeah, it's kind of a minute. But but that'll be over in a couple of weeks. I'm moving to somewhere with a little more stable connection. <laughs> Internet, you you can. Uh, that's pretty best. Um. So so let's kind of jump onto over to um, Jesse. 
when Jesse, so when when Kelly's come to you with this game, kind of, and as we said, it's tower defense, space themed, obviously, kind of. How did you start piecing together the music, kind of, of of like what would make sense for this game? Well, Kelly had heard the initial track that is in the uh, title screen, I believe now, and he was good to go with that. Um, He just said, let's just stick with that theme and maybe try and use a lot of similar instruments so it has a continual theme. And at first, it was definitely a challenge. I've never tried to produce for a video game before, so uh, it was a lot of learning a new thing and then applying all the old things that I had in my arsenal and trying to make an evolved product out of that. And it was definitely a challenge, but Kelly was right there allowing troll, and he had definitely some great creative suggestions as we went. Kind of, I'm curious, especially with this, I'd say, more unique circumstance of, as we talk about the internet and kind of like where you guys live, did that change kind of how you guys collaborated throughout this process, especially in the backdrop of like the pandemic happening and stuff? All done in-house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're fortunate enough to be roommates in this situation, so yeah, building it from the ground up. That it was like a kind of a lucky thing of that because you just kind of go knocking at the door, being like, "So, um, I need this." <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It it was uh, serendipitous, to say the least. Yep, he'll be in here working on the music while I'm in there working on the game. And <laughs> so then, so with it just being you two, I'm just kind of curious because I feel like. The process of kind of where it was you two is, is again, interesting because having a dedicated audio person is, I think, unique in this size game and environment, unless the usual main person is the audio person. Um, did that ever, for you, um, for you, Kelly, did that ever change kind of like, oh, now I could do these things that maybe people couldn't do because I had someone who basically did a lot of music and audio for the game? Definitely freed up a lot of time for me to do other things. And yeah, yeah, he uh, added some sound effects ability, but I do have a little music background myself. Just he's got a, he's a little better than, than me. So that kind of works out, you know, to help collaborate. We can give better feedback. I actually know a little about the subject and I actually had some basic songs in the game when he replaced them. But yeah, they were very basic, just spot holders. <laughs> I can I can imagine even if you're not the one doing it, then it at least helps with your like relative. You'd have some little music instincts or taste. I'd be like, oh, at least you have a rough idea of what's gonna go here. Versus, I walked up to an audio person. I'm just like, so I need sound. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> some of it was like that. Yeah, what, what, what you want, and then I'd just listen to what he did, and we'd get mix a bright, and we'd work on you know just pointing things out. But yeah, we got it all worked out. Yeah, and to his credit, I mean, Kelly did all the sound effects. He he made them from scratch, and I was telling him, you know, I have all these sound effects stored up in my arsenal, and he was like, no, I want to make them brand new. I don't want them anywhere else. <laughs> so let's let's kind of jump into, so as we said about the audio, let's kind of jump into mechanically about the game. So when, when, when people say tower defense, I think there's a certain image kind of in their head of, like, you're a stationary thing, and you place down some level of turrets, and the enemies come towards you. 
Obviously, your game follows that basic formula, but do you mind kind of talking a little bit more kind of like what a player can expect kind of like in a round or a series of rounds in the game? I added on a few extra things to do because tower defense is generally sitting there and thinking and placing a tower here and there. So I did add in a few abilities like orbital laser and airstrike, and uh, you can rush the wave, just things to keep you busy in between placing those towers. So I gotta ask about the thing. Or- orbital airstrike is the thing I feel like everyone's gonna stop and their ears are gonna perk up right there. Um, Two separate, the, the orbital laser and the airstrike. So let's start with the orbital laser. Let's do the orbital laser. How do you, how do you, so like obviously orbital laser comes down, kills things. How do you, like when playing the game and creating it, make sure something that is not too powerful? Because I feel like that is the issue that a lot of these games fall into is either they're way too hard and there's always one answer, or they're way too easy and then everyone just kind of just kills things the most convoluted way possible. Well, the the my uh, the UFO with the most hit points, the laser does that much damage, so it will take one of those out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's I'm just kind of uh, play and go. I've just kind of played around with it till it worked. And I mean, Kelly put in dozens, if not hundreds, of hours into the balance of the gameplay. I I can attest to that. I can Still imagine. I can, I can see worlds where this gets. <laughs> unbalanced so quick and you're like wait i can't beat this or you have the issue did you ever have the what i'm assuming is a common issue and like this you, you got so good at it you hand it off even to anyone else and they're like yeah i can't beat level one yeah exactly i'm doing that i'm like the only one beta uh, testing it right now and i finally got my daughter to play it a little bit and she gets to like level three and can't beat it and i just i just know where everything goes <laughs> so it's all just easy to me now <laughs> So yeah, it's hard for me to uh, grasp how difficult it is because I know where to put everything. But yeah, definitely got some beta testers testers working on it now. Because to me, that is the age-old problem with these, is obviously making sure that you are the correct difficulty. And not just correct, it feels right. And that's the problem with this, is, is that inherent feel of these games. What was well, yeah. yeah? What was kind of your goal, kind of going into this? Did you want this to be like one of those like super intense ones, or one what I would think of as like those like mid tier like flash ones we kind of saw during the height of the flash era, where it's kind of like you just kind of open it up and just kind of play a couple rounds and like realistically yeah. you're gonna win. More of a mid tier casual, you'll play a few. Nothing too complex, or yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want a very complex game. I wanted something simple that anybody could really play. Just something that I liked. I don't like like uh, swapping out all these different, too many turrets, swapping them out, and it just gets too in-depth. I wanted something simple you could sit down for a few minutes and play without a lot of knowledge about the game. I know that makes sense. So do you have kind of any uh, any parts of the game to you that like are your favorite kind of either turrets to the mess with or kind of strategies that you kind of go through while playing? Favorite turret, I think, would be the laser, I guess. Or Laser? I can't, I can't exactly blame you on that. The laser is really cool. I, I like the airstrikes. I think they came out um, really well with the graphics, and they're just a, a clutch move at the portal, for sure. So what? So when you say airstrikes, like I'm looking at stuff them and stuff them too, it's... I, 
Well, there, there's the one with the uh, – it, it has like an airplane sound effect that comes in and it drops, I think, three or four, maybe three missiles down on them. And it just came out real nice in the end. That's the ultimate question, and maybe maybe down the road this is going to answer it too, is was there any turrets or any like upgrade stuff that that got lost in the, of the game that maybe you're planning and download either bring back either in updates or in a sequel or anything? Nothing yet. So far, I've done everything I uh, set out to do in it. With... Rare and very impressive, because that's the age-old joke. Is like, I, I have a game. It's 1% of what I thought the game was going to be. It's very surpri- I'm surprising myself here, too, because I'm learning as I go. <laughs> There's the potential works for a sequel to this game down the chute, and it would have an evolved form of the enemies, but we don't want to get into too much detail, have too many spoilers there. That makes perfect sense. So, kind of touching on the enemies, um, are there any enemies that kind of like really stand out to you guys that like kind of when when players are kind of going into this that they should keep an eye out for? Well, the later enemies for sure. The they start off pretty easy with not a lot of special abilities, but as you get up there, they start getting getting different abilities. And uh, the Vamanas and Pyramids are a little bit dangerous. They got a lot of hit points and a few extra abilities. Like the Vamanas can shut down your towers and they heal themselves, a few other things. Of a, of a an enemy first shutting down the tower then healing himself is the most infuriating thing humanly possible. <laughs> yep, but it only does one tower and it's got a very short range. <laughs> See, that's when you should have really messed with people and had, like, two enemies, and one does the healing and one does the shutdown, because then you could create this thing, which is, I would be so frustrated. And the uh, the Vamanas just heal themselves, and then the pyramids heal everything around them. So, yeah, they, they kind of work together sometimes, too. So, did you kind of, when, when going through this, kind of developing it, was there any level of kind of making enemies purposely that kind of would, would I hate to say work together, but kind of, like, balance their powers off each other like was that kind of like a plan thing like okay now we're gonna have these multiple types that like will come out in similar waves and now it can kind of really mess with players maybe not with the enemies but i used i, I kind of used their abilities to balance the turrets like uh, the lasers only affect certain enemies and like the orbs only only the lasers will damage the orbs and there's a few uh, the, the, a few other turrets are beneficial to use on some of the other enemies like, I've got one enemy, enemy that accelerates, and if you use the first turret on that, he's just going to fly off. <laughs> but uh, it's generally in there to make you use the different turrets and give them some value. Yeah, that's, I would say that is an age-old thing, I feel like, with these games, is always finding that nice balance of of a good way to control your turrets level, even, is kind of, like, making sure they have to counter, like, unique towers. How much of a problem did you kind of have that kind of like, as you said, you started to have more beta testers or your daughter playing. How much of that kind of did you have problems of like explaining to players that they needed this new tower when this new enemy was appearing? Well, uh, I've got pop-ups for the, they might be a little annoying, but you can disable them once you learn it. But I do have pop-ups that uh, tell you, you know, what, like the pop-up for the orb says lasers only. It gives you a little clue. It's like if you're reading the pop-ups, it, it'll you'll know what to use. Uh, the real one that, that that I think we all understand is players aren't going to read half the stuff on the screen. <laughs> I try to keep everything short, a uh, few words as possible. 
much nicer than me. Half the time if I try to do things to players, I'll just, like, remove control from them. So that way I'm like, nope, you have to read this. Or you have to at least find the button that's at least somewhere a little awkward. You have to read something. <laughs> yeah, I'll watching a few people play. Yeah, it pops up and they just close it instantly. Never, never read a word. <laughs> the age-old problem is across, across any industry, across anything. Like, it's like whenever anyone gets instruction manuals from, like, building furniture, we just toss those out and then we start building the furniture. It's the, it's the problem. No one's reading. <laughs> the issue in the it's, game is it'll be very frustrating. It's not too hard to let, figure out, though. It's a pretty simple game. Yeah, I got a big folder of the manuals on my hard drive. I'd, you know, one day maybe. <laughs> yeah, that is that is a giant problem with these. Yeah. <laughs> so, as we're talking, the game is coming out in two-ish, three weeks, I believe. Um, if yeah, that's August 2nd. August 2nd. Um, so I'm kind of curious, how at this point is development going for the game? Are you just kind of waiting kind of hit the magic Steam button? Are you guys kind of wrapping up some bugs and all that? Well, I did have everything about ready until I decided to throw in Steam Cloud and rebuild my save system. And now I'm going through testing again to make sure all that's working. <laughs> Yeah, I rebuilt the save system from scratch. I was using Unity's Player Press and built my own uh, binary serialization. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, no, I, I, I've started to read through that headache, and it's not a fun headache to kind of completely change off of that system. I guess to be fair, Player Press, from a technical end at least, Unity isn't secure with the clouds a little more secure, kind of how you're storing that data. But I'm assuming in a game like this, if a player even cheated a little, you're like it's a player's fault, like they could have fun. Yep. If you want to hack it, go right ahead. It's your game, and it's not multiplayer. So, and I'm not not selling any in-game currency. No reason for me to not let them. Kind of how my thoughts even on those kind of games too. Like if it's a game like this where it's single player, and you want to rent yourself, go ahead. But don't come to me when you say why is it no longer working when I can see you edited your save file. I did throw the binary formatter in there. Just that was more just practice for me for the next game than this game needed it. You know. Yeah, it's about the games that are like this, it's like, eh, you don't need it. Like, some people will still do it just because, or like, once you make a couple games, you might have, like, a save format system already built. But yeah, it's kind of like a give or take. Um, but yeah, so the game is August 2nd, as we said. It is using, looks like Steam Cloud. You have Steam Achievements, which, another headache. Congratulations on, sounds like, figuring out at least. <laughs> Yeah, the the achievement achievements weren't near as hard as the cloud, but yeah, the cloud had had to had to, had to hold do a whole rewrite of the save system, and that was the biggest pain. Still testing out that. I remember hearing about the achievements for quite some time. Yes. <laughs> I like I said, it's, yeah, it's like a, it's not that hard. And then voice, no, 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 it's very hard to say. It was pain in the ass. Yeah, but the achievements were just a little headache here and there. The cloud, I, I mean, I, I got on a four day four day coding binge and didn't shower or eat or. Didn't move. <laughs> that True. I must have had to bring him meals. <laughs> the game is UFKO Tower Defense. I'm sorry, it says Tower Defense Extra Max Pro Plus Elite is what it's saying on this title card right here. I didn't make that the rules. Yeah, the official name is just UFOKO Tower <laughs> Defense. <laughs> the game comes out August 2nd. Um, it includes... It looks like 20-something levels, a lot of crafts, turrets. Um, how much is the game going for? It's going to be $6.99. Perfect. So 
available on Steam. Anyone else people should go check out for the game? Just on Steam. Just on Steam. And I believe it's $10 bundled with the uh, with soundtrack. With the soundtrack, yeah. And yep. the soundtrack separately is $3.99. Yeah, and the soundtrack has two, I believe, it has two additional songs and an extended version of one of the in-game songs. Perfect. So yes, we should go check out, maybe it sounds like they should go check out that bundle for $10.99. Did I just mishear myself? It'll be $9.99. $9.99. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so go check that out. But yeah, otherwise go check out the game on Steam. Again, August 2nd. Guys, thank you for, uh, especially with the technical issues before, sitting down and talking to me this afternoon about the game. And best of luck leading up to launch, especially with apparently some rebuilding some systems relatively last minute. And thanks for having us on, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Really, truly appreciate that. And yeah, definitely nice talking with another coffee lover. And we wish you the best of luck in your endeavors as well. This episode is partially brought to you by the Humble Choice Program. Did you know Humble Bundle has a great monthly subscription service that lets you get a ton of video games every single month? That's right. From plans range from $5 to 20 bucks a month, you get a hold of a bunch of free games they have available to you. And you can use our code down in the description below to go and sign up. It would help our podcast and help you see what great games are available for you this month. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of these interview edition episodes of the SWW Show. I'm Mike, and today with me, a special guest from across the Atlantic, actually. Uh, to get us started, do you mind introducing yourself and the game we're here to talk about? Yeah, my name is uh, Al, I'm a Norwegian game developer, and I am currently working on a game called Skald Against the Black Priory. Skald uh, is uh, a retro-style RPG that is uh, very reminiscent of early 90s RPGs like Ultima, Ultima 5, Wasteland 1, um, the Bard's Tale games, um, the Gold Box series, for people who are familiar with that. So it's uh, it's this kind of very pixelated, tile-based and turn-based uh, RPG that uh, looks pretty old, but that uh, sort of the, the main design pillar of the game is that it should still play like a modern game. So there's a lot of quality of life um, features in the game that weren't there to begin with. And the, the game also has a fairly... I, I would say the writing is fairly modern in the game. There's a lot of the writing in the game, and we, we sort of deal with a lot of uh, themes that are certainly darker and uh, uh, perhaps more mature than a lot of the, the games that I'm trying to emulate. So I usually describe it as Ultima 5, but with more Lovecraft in it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. Um, I'm kind of curious, were these games like really big kind of than in like kind of where you grew up and stuff because obviously i think of them like most ones you listed i believe well made i believe in the u.s or at least more akin to that and i'm just kind of very intrigued to see if those were like big games for you kind of growing up would you get them to them later or like even in regionally were they big games uh, they were they were big games in Europe as well, Europe as well, and I think that's just because uh, for a lot of countries in Europe there wasn't a game industry in the early nineties, and certainly not in Scandinavia and Norway, at least not in, uh, of the scale that, for instance, uh, uh, that you saw with companies uh, from from the US. So so. Uh, I don't think, I, I, or I, I have no way of really knowing, but I would be surprised if 
growing up in the early 90s in the US or in the Norway, if you felt that there were different games available to you in the US than in Norway, I would I would think it was more or less the same. Um, and, and Norway has always been uh, has always been one of those countries that have always had we don't we don't dub movies in Norway, for instance. So English literacy is quite high in Norway and always has been, and that means that um, so I think the threshold for playing for playing uh, you know like old school English uh, language uh, adventure games and role playing games that are usually fairly text heavy. They can be difficult to parse if you don't speak English, but in Norway that's never really been a problem. So so um, the, the, all of these games were were uh, widely available when I grew up, and also obviously seminal uh, games in Norway, just as they were in the US. Just as a surprise, I was kind of curious because obviously coming from America, I have a certain perspective on like regionally what games are, and I knew like Europe, like I always think of like I think it's the UK had like Amigo and stuff like that, like America didn't have, so I always find that kind of stuff intriguing. So kind of jumping in then, why did you decide to go down to remake, not remake, but like make a game of this very specific tight genre? Have you been watching stuff like Wasteland come back and you're like, oh, I could do that? Or like what was kind of the, the, the goal of making a game like this? I think the primary thing is that um, I really remember playing a lot of these games and really enjoying them when I grew up. But as I sort of grew older and they became available on GOG, a lot of them are available on GOG.com in particular. They, they have sort of made a lot of them uh, playable on, on Windows 10 without doing any emulation and so forth. And, but, but, you know, still I felt that I kept bouncing off them, even games that I played a lot, um, just because, you know, they were designed for different times. And especially thinking about, uh, you know, there's a lot of quality of life features that are that, that aren't in those games that we are very used to today, like being able to save anywhere, having auto-mapping, having a journal system, things like that. That they're, Obviously, they're charming in, you know, in their own way, but as someone who has, uh, you know, as, as, as a gamer and as a consumer in the 2020s, you, you don't really have time for a lot of the things that you that you did back in the day. Back in the day, you would maybe buy a game, you know, for Christmas, and then you would play for a year, and that's <laughs> that's not how the world works anymore. So, so I kind of felt that there was, uh, and in particular for for that specific segment of role playing games, which is sort of turn based, tile based, has a low fi pixelate has low fi pixelated graphics. There are surprisingly few of them out there. Almost all role-playing games that you, or not all of them, but but at least a lot of them, um, are either uh, they're either um, sort of real-time with pause or real-time in in a sense first-person role-playing games. Um, there's also a lot of for the turn-based role-playing games. There's a lot of uh, JRPGs, like Japanese RPGs, and they are that they play distinctively different from the way games like Scald play. Uh, uh, which is inspired more by Ultimas, by the Ultimas and uh, the Magic Candle series and so forth. So, so to me at least, there was a distinct lack of games in that genre, and especially games that were a bit more modern than the old games. You know, so it was either go back and play the old games, or beyond that, there wasn't really a lot out there. So, so I basically ended up deciding, sort of making the game that I myself was missing in the market that I really wanted to play for me. And I think that's always a that's always a very good motivation to have when you go about making a game in sort of a 
uh, hobby slash side project slash semi-professional endeavor um, because it means that you have a lot of motivation going into it at least. So uh, so that was sort of the, the way I uh, I stumbled onto it. And, and you know, I, I've said this a lot before, but there's this pretty... I think there's a great quote by Josh Sawyer from Obsidian Entertainment regarding isometric RPGs like the Baldur's Gate series. You know, Obsidian Entertainment made the Pillars of Eternity games recently, and uh, they were sort of a revival of the isometric RPG genre. And, and Josh's quote is that uh, the, the audience never abandoned isometric RPGs, but publishers did. And I think that's, that pretty much holds true for tile and turn-based RPGs as well, because even though you could make those games real-time, there's there's definitely uh, a good argument to be made that there are also people who enjoy playing those games like they used to be, fully tile-based, fully turn-based. Uh, and so I don't think... I think there's... Or obviously there is an audience, because my game has been quite popular so far. Um, and so uh, I think I was just lucky to stumble on a niche that was slightly underserved in the marketplace, so to speak. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I've, I, I remember I've definitely heard that quote, and it's always a thought that's i'd be always curious kind of like what are the genres that's true of just because there is this general rule that obviously like especially you get like big publishers like unless the game can sell 10 million units it's not even worth looking at where a lot of these genres that yeah. like it's funny because the reason we think they, there's an audience for them is because they haven't grown at the same rate as the rest of the industry but the thing we forget is though all of the players that would play these games before were still around so you still have a healthy couple hundred thousand seller or ten thousand seller or whatever it is and pinning the size of your audience or like your team it's a hundred percent a profitable game it's just not a multi hundred million dollar thing anymore um what i'm curious about though is so obviously when, when people talk about these games i think they think of certain things kind of like what do you think ultima or in modern context we think pillars or any of these games we like inherently think certain things about them I'm kind of curious if we kind of talk about, as you talk about, you're modernizing the genre a bit, or at least in your game, you're modernizing it. What does that mean that to you, kind of, and what can people expect while playing this game that that would be not the same problems that you have when you turn, up, turn on a 90s game anymore? Mm. I think, uh, I think you know, there's... There's a lot that's happened in in terms of UI design and user experience design that 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 just were things that people didn't realize in the early 90s, uh, or in some cases there might not have been uh, like uh, it might not have been technically possible to do certain things in the early 90s. And and just to have it said, I'm not going to claim that my game is going to have. Uh, it's it's not going to be the the best in its class in terms of UI design because I'm sticking to a lot of very old-fashioned design uh, conventions in terms of how how the UI is organized, but it's still going to be leaps and bounds leaps and bounds more user friendly than than the old games were, um, and some of that is just because we know more today in terms of how how we sort of uh, how we think about UI and the other thing is that we can also do different things we can have we can have an uh, in-game sort of uh, Wikipedia slash lexicon thing where you can look up game concepts for instance you know we can we can uh, we can have a lot more feedback being given to the player we can have sort of a different there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things we can do differently today that you couldn't really back in the day so so the question becomes from sort of a design standpoint is 
uh, how do we avoid throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Because what, what what was in those old games that has some that still has some merit, even though it's it might it might be a little bit clunky, maybe. But what are some things that are that we can sort of still keep in the game? What would be going too far in modernizing the game, for instance? Um, and that's not really a, it's not super easy to answer that. Uh, but I think we've been able to walk a fine line. And and one of the things that I really try to dig deep on is quality of life stuff. Like um, oh, there's an auto map in the game that didn't that wasn't really a thing back in the day. There's a journal system in the game. There's a quest journal in the game. Um, there will be a lot of features for like sorting your inventory, things like that. It's it's not in the demo actually. It's a much requested feature and it's uh, it's very high on my to-do list so it's going in there as well so there's a lot of things like that in the game that will make it a lot easier to parse for players um, I think there's also a, more of an economy of uh, of action in the game you can play it with the keyboard if you want to you can play it with the mouse if you want to we try to sort of reduce the number of clicks you have to do to perform actions in the game for instance in combat just like shaving off um, shaving off uh, things you have to do to sort of perform an attack for instance so everything is sort of fast and snappy and responsive and gives you feedback um, and you know those things are important because we have to sort of we might, we're really competing for players attention more than people were back in the day and I mean if people manage to set aside 20 minutes to play the game that might be all the time we have to make an impression on someone so um, we have to kind of dig deep to to uh, to make it stick without obviously going too far because this is also a rabbit hole where you can really dig yourself down into but I'm, I'm a solo developer and I also know that I am developing a niche game for a niche audience so even though I, of course I want the game to have broad appeal uh, there is also a limit to how far I can sort of take it without both either breaking the style genres or conventions or also just spending too much time developing so, so it's, uh, it's sort of three dimensional chess in that sense I think yeah, no, I can I can see where this becomes a, a a tight balancing act for an audience that I think we probably both we expect. If I say it's this type of game, they expect certain things, right? And we've kind of talked about that for a bit. I'm kind of curious if we kind of jump into for people who who are unfamiliar entirely with this work right now. What what is your top level pitch kind of for this game specifically of like of like, if you said, what is the game about? What, what would you describe that as to people? Um, uh, I, I, I usually say it's a, it's a, it's a grim, dark, uh, fantasy retro style RPG. That's sort of my one liner for the game. And, uh, like I said earlier, I usually describe it as Ultima five with more Lovecraft. And that obviously doesn't work for people who don't get those references, but, but, uh, like I said, it's, it's a retro style, grim, dark fantasy RPG. That's kind of the, the sort of the top line, uh, top level uh, description of the game I would say so I'm always curious so obviously Lovecraft actually means something because Lovecraftian is is Lovecraft's own author and what do you think when you say Lovecraft what 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 do you think that should mean to people versus like what it might mean so Lovecraft for me is basically a shorthand of saying cosmic horror but for marketing purposes cosmic horror is less recognizable as a brand or as sort of as a 
as a tag than Lovecraft is. Lovecraft is uh, has a lot of high visibility on platforms like Steam, for instance. So if the game has something like that in it, it's it's usually um, a good idea to to use Lovecraftian uh, as a tag, at least. Uh, that's my experience. So, but but for me, it's not. It doesn't necessarily. It doesn't explicitly references reference his uh, his mythos or his writing. Not at all. But it, but there is a veneer of cosmic horror to the game uh, that is probably um, uh, that has uh, that has more to do with sort of the general feel and tone uh, tone of the game. Um, where where there is sort of a feel of sort of this creeping horror and underlying uh, feeling that there is this wrongness about the, with the world around you, for instance, uh, those are sort of very strong themes in the game, and and I think it's uh, it has uh, there's definitely elements of sort of uh, this uh, pulpy noir uh, fantasy slash detective stories. Uh, I think there's a lot of inspiration from the true the first season of True Detectives, for instance, is is a big inspiration for the game. Uh, and obviously, it's not. It's probably not a comparison you would think of, you know, if, if I didn't mention it. But but there is sort of some of the same themes run through the game. It's this very uh, uh, shades of grey, morally ambiguous, uh, and slightly nihilistic worldview. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, I would say fairly typical of cosmic horror as a genre. So That's a, that's a very interesting... Description and yeah, that is funny because cosmic horror probably is a more accurate thing, but I guess you will pop culture. I'm shocked you haven't started advertising this and being like based on the genre that inspired Bloodborne. See, that's your great marketing pitch right there. People would understand that one. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I, I didn't play Bloodborne myself actually, so so uh, so it is, it is uh, definitely Lovecraftian when you look at it. Like, if you if anyone's ever curious, what yeah, is Lovecraft's exactly. thing like? It's like, yeah. In five minutes, you'll you'll figure it out. Yeah, but the thing is, the thing is that with uh, with cosmic horror in general, and also a lot of games doing Lovecraft, uh, and like I said, I haven't really, I, I've only watched a few like Let's Plays of Bloodborne, and I get an impression that it's sort of a Dark Souls like, but with Lovecraftian elements. Isn't that the sort of the one line for? Uh, and sort of the the issue with a lot of games, uh, and also sort of the tightrope I'm trying to walk with Scald is that it's difficult to convey sort of cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror when you're, you know, quote unquote, just killing monsters with machine guns, <laughs> uh, b- because that's not really what his stories are about. So I'm actually. Of course, there is some tentacle monsters, of course, in the game, but I don't think it, um, love. You know, it's kind of counterproductive to the cosmic horror genre if your way of dealing with sort of the the horror of the world is to fight it, like literally, literally fight it, trying to hack it apart with a sword. So, so it's difficult to to walk that tightrope, and I, I try to dig more deep, sort of on. On having the horror come through in the in the sort of environmental storytelling and the narrative, rather than explicitly in uh, every monster being like uh, a mythos creature, a tentacled, uh, horrible creature that you that you that you get to kill, because those two things don't really go well together. So, sort of this RPG progression of growing stronger by killing things 
doesn't necessarily merge well with the genre where sort of being exposed to to the the world and the horrible secrets of the world will eventually drive you insane and and kill you. So it's uh, it's it's a difficult tightrope to walk, and so um, yeah. kind of as we get more towards the back half of this, what I'm curious about is, is so as we talk about, obviously, this is a game that is in early access, is coming out, uh, I guess, if I remember right, and what's interesting to me, though, is you have recently, a couple weeks ago, released a demo for the game, uh, which obviously is, I assume, helping you yeah. with massive feedback for it. Um, I'm kind of curious, why did you get on the route of releasing a demo when you're also going into early access? I'm just kind of curious to me, because... In a lot of ways, I view early access almost as that extended demo e period for this type of game. Yeah, I think I think that was sort of the idea when early access started as um, a, as a way of putting your game out there. It's a way to signal that you're putting out a game that's not really that's not really fully done. But I think the the audience, I, th- I think the audience perception of early access has shifted somewhat in the last, you know, and these trends change so quickly so it, it's just like even in the last year I think what we mean about early access now has changed and I think people expect a, a fairly large degree of polish in an early access product especially in terms of the amount of content that goes into an early access game I think people expect uh, it to be uh, I think people it's like it's the full game but with more bugs <laughs> is what I think people think when when you say early access and um, for me I would say that uh, to be able to get the, the game up to a, a polished enough level to even sort of uh, feel comfortable launching it on early access. It's it was essential for me to to do a prologue to um, because it's extremely helpful in terms of uh, both playtesting and getting feedback and constructive criticism. That's sort of been uh, one of my key uh, uh, ways of making this game has been to rely very heavily on on interacting with the community. At first, uh, like the Kickstarter and Indiegogo backers, and now with the crowd who's been playing the demo, and it's been hugely helpful in making the game. So, so for me, it's so, uh, releasing a prologue is almost equivalent to sort of submitting it to my. If if I was a big studio, I would probably just submit it to my own quality assurance uh, <laughs> department. But I don't have one, so I have to sort of crowdsource it a little bit. And also, doing a prologue is, especially if done right, it's also a really good marketing tool. Um, it usually gets uh, a lot of eyes on the product it uh, raises quite a bit of awareness and especially if you do it the way i did if you as launching it as a separate application on steam it means that uh, you will have a lot of people being drawn to the main application whereas also if it flops you will sort of insulate uh, the main game from the bad reviews of the demo with this little by by the virtue of them being two applications, so games like Backbone has recently done it very successfully, and I think that was sort of a, an interesting case study in how the sort of the prologue can be used to to really boost your launch. And so for a game like me, getting more visibility is hugely important because as a tiny one man studio, that's probably my biggest challenge. It's that I could I could make a the greatest game ever made and still uh, fail because people didn't notice the game. So uh, getting it out there and getting more eyes on it is immensely important for me. Great sense. Now, if people wanted to 
go check out the game or check out the demo, any of that fun stuff, where should we be sending them? Um, uh, there is a, both a Steam and a GOG page uh, for both the prologue and the main game. So you can wishlist wish the main game. Um, or uh, play the prologue, and if you just go- if you just search on Steam or GOG for Scald, uh, Scald against the Black Priory will be the first uh, the first item that comes up, and and either one of those one will be the main game, one will be the prologue. Whichever you click will lead you to the other one as well. So uh, you should find it all there. And my website, my devlog is also uh, scaldrpg.com. S K A ldrpg.com and that also has links to everything the discord community the applications on steam on gog everything like that so you can find everything there perfect well i want to say thank you for taking time out of your afternoon to sit down and talk to me about the game and again people if they want to go check it out it is currently a free demo if they just do scold uh the black priority in, in the prologue right and then if they want to go I assume wishlisted all that fun stuff. Yeah. Go check out the not prologue on yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Last thing I have for you if is you, do you have pricing currently available for the game or is that still kind of TBD as you get closer to launch? No, 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 no. The game will probably launch for we will we'll probably price the game at twenty dollars at launch. Um and that's uh, and then there might be some uh, early bird discounts as we go into early access to sort of get people on the early access train. And uh, the launch date has been stated as August second on Steam, but I don't think we're going to make it. I'm just a one man team, so any delay uh, sort of delays the entire project because I'm doing it all myself. But we'll try to do everything we can to release uh, release um, the game by late summer. And um, I suggest just uh, following me on uh, Steam or Twitter, uh, the Discord server, and just stay posted there, and you'll you'll uh, be up to date. Again, thank you for taking time to talk to me, and enjoy the rest of your afternoon evening. Likewise, Mike. Thank you so much. This podcast was a production of The SWW Show. To learn more, go to theswwshow.com. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at The SWW Show. You can follow me at Mikey underscore Moni. You can follow AJ at Boy. Remember, new episodes premiere on Friday, 9 a.m. Central Time on anchor.fm slash SWW and podcast services around the globe.